Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have two brand new movies to review for you, and also another one which is mostly brand new to other people except maybe for professional critics. It was a movie that came out the previous week, but I did not have time to review it until this week. So I'm going to be I'm going to be covering that film for you in just a little bit. First though, I'm going to review the newest film that's come out, which is Halloween Ends, which is directed by David Gordon Green and is a sequel to Halloween Kills. It is the 13th installment in the Halloween franchise, i.e. the movies with Michael Myers as the antagonist. And it is the final film in the trilogy of sequels that were that was directed by David Gordon Green that commenced uh, with the 2018 film. And the 2018 film directly followed the 1978 film, uh, which originally had Jamie Lee Curtis as in the role as Laurie Strode and disregarded all other sequels, remakes and other entries. So this movie has a lot to live up to. Halloween ends. It comes after actually a pretty disappointing movie. Halloween kills, which came out last year. And it's an improvement slightly over Halloween Kills, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily great. So Halloween Ends is where the saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode comes to a spine-chilling climax in this final installment of this trilogy and presumably the final installment of the Halloween movies, although the way that horror movie sequels work... It's unlikely this this will be the last Halloween movie. I'd like it to be, but I don't necessarily think that it will be. But Halloween Ends is in theaters right now, and it's actually also streaming on Peacock. So if you have access to the paid version of Peacock, you'll be able to see it. But just like the 2018 Halloween movie, as well as last year's Halloween Kills, Jamie Lee Curtis reprises her role as Laurie Strode. And in this movie, uh, Michael Myers is played by uh, Nick Castle, and he's basically a shape, more or less. He just kind of goes around, kills people, doesn't say anything. So I guess that's to be expected of Michael Myers, because Rob Zombie actually made a remake of Halloween and Halloween 2, and in that remake, controversially, Michael Myers actually spoke. I haven't seen the Rob Zombie Halloween movies, so I can't make any judgments about that. But yeah, having Michael Myers speak is kind of like having Tom and Jerry speak. It's out of character, and you just don't really do that to the characters. But is Michael Myers scary in this? Well, not as much as in the earlier Halloween films, especially the 1978 film. In fact, his shtick has pretty much gotten old. And also, what really bothered me about this movie is it takes place three or four years after the events of the 2018 Halloween movie and Halloween Kills, and Michael Myers is still at large. What I would have liked to to have seen is, and this probably would have happened in real life, 
if a homicidal maniac is stalking a small suburb of uh, Chicago, in this case it's Haddonfield, Illinois, which I don't think is a real town, but it's presumed that's a suburb of Chicago. But if he's going around killing people and the police haven't been able to stop him, in reality, the SWAT team or the FBI would be all over that town trying to find Michael Myers. And I think that actually would have been a satisfying conclusion. Michael Myers versus the FBI with Michael Myers and Laurie Strode facing off at the very end. I think it probably would have been a bit contrived, but it would have been a more exciting conclusion and an exciting film altogether with that kind of uh, climax there. But I think with some very smart writing, they would have been able to pull it off. But in this movie instead, they try to insert a love story here with a lovesick rebel rebel by the name of Corey, who's played by Rohan Campbell. And we're introduced to Corey when he's babysitting in between high school and college um, for a well-to-do family. And he's on his way to college, but he hasn't quite gotten there yet, but he's taking any job he can. And a tragic accident ends up with the kid he's babysitting getting uh, dying. And I'm not going to tell you how the kid dies. It's a pretty gruesome scene, and... It, it starts the film off on a questionable note, but not necessarily in an inappropriate note. But a couple of years later, because the death was ruled accidental, Corey's dreams of being of going to college are shattered, although I think he probably still would have gone to college. And he works as a mechanic, which this movie makes you think is an unnoble profession, but it most certainly is a very noble profession, not to mention a lucrative one. But he is indeed more of a sullen rebel like James Dean, more than somebody who's made a very understandable mistake. But he ends up having this love story in the movie with Allison, who's played by Andy Matichak. And Allison is the granddaughter of Laurie Strode, who is reprised in this movie by Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, what I liked about Jamie Lee Curtis's performance in this movie is that they gave Laurie Strode a lot more to do than they did in the first ha- or the 2018 Halloween movie and most especially last year's Halloween Kills. I liked that part of it. And you know, the the lead up to Laurie Strode facing off with Michael Myers is not nearly as good as the actual face-off between her and Michael Myers. That was definitely the selling point of this film. But the love story between Corey and Allison doesn't really work. I didn't think Rohan Campbell worked very well as a James Dean-like rebel, especially when he starts to, and this is true, become somewhat of an apprentice or an understudy for Michael Myers once he discovers Michael Myers living in the sewers of Haddonfield, Illinois. And that was probably the most contrived part of the film because why would you want to emulate Michael Myers if you're a person of sound mind, even if you're a bit rebellious? The movie doesn't really give you a very good explanation. And also, what was really horrific to me was the amount of victim shaming that Laurie Strode endured from the town members of Haddonfield, Illinois. Now, in the previous movie, Halloween Kills, 
a family member of Laurie Strode's gets killed by Michael Myers. And there are townspeople, and sometimes her own granddaughter, are saying, you did this. You brought this on. No, she didn't. Um, You could blame Michael Myers himself. You can blame the police who haven't tracked him down or apprehended him or even killed him. You could blame the FBI for not investigating Haddonfield, Illinois and tracking down Michael Myers themselves, which I imagine they would do in a matter of days, if not hours. But don't blame the first victim of Michael Myers or the one who survived. That just doesn't make any sense. So Halloween Ends is not exactly a fitting end to the Halloween franchise. I suppose it is better than Halloween Kills, but to me, Halloween Ends is still a strikeout. The only great part of this movie was when Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode faces off against Michael Myers, who, if you're interested, is played in this movie by Nick Castle, but you don't know that because you never see Michael Myers' face. And that is good, but the way it leads up to that showdown and also what happens after the showdown, i.e. the way that Michael Myers, oh, I I might be spoiling something. Anyway, the aftermath of that showdown is also disappointing as well as unrealistic. And they could have made this movie, you know... (laughs) thrilling while also being realistic. As I said, Michael Myers versus the FBI might be a tacky or corny name for a sequel, but for a plot device, it could have been very intriguing. I would have loved to have seen Michael Myers either take on the FBI or take on the SWAT team, and whether or not he survives, that would have been great. But David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy is probably brought to an end with this movie, And thank God for that, but very much like Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies, this movie was three films, it could have been one, and if Topher Grace wants to edit these Halloween movies into one film, maybe in a future film where he's playing Alex Jones, and the reference here is to, as a therapeutic practice, when he played David Duke in the movie Black Klansman, he actually edited all three of Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies into one film. If he wants to do that for the Halloween films, he's welcome to do so, and I would have liked to see his results in that kind of edit. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Amsterdam. This is the latest movie directed by David O. Russell, who has brought us such movies before as Flirting with Disaster, which was an indie hit starring Ben Stiller, Taya Leone, Patricia Arquette, and an all-star cast. Uh, But Ben Stiller wasn't an A-lister back in 1996, but still, it was a very well-received movie, and it was a very unique film as well. 
He also directed Three Kings, I Heart Huckabees, The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, and Joy. And those are just his uh, mainstream uh, movies, particularly his mainstream critical and or commercial successes. So this is the first movie that he has directed since Joy, which came out back in 2015. And Amsterdam, very much like Flirting with Disaster, has an all-star cast. Unlike for Flirting with Disaster, Amazon, excuse me, Amsterdam has an all-star A-list cast, including but not limited to Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington. In this movie, Christian Bale plays a quirky doctor by the name of Bert Berenson, who has been injured physically and psychologically from World War I, and he found a comrade in arms with another soldier by the name of Harold Woodman, who's played by John David Washington. And if you know anything about John David Washington, you know that John David Washington is black and Christian Bale is, wa- is white. So how could the two of them be comrades in arms during World War I when the troops were segregated? Well, this movie paints a pretty good explanation for it. I don't know if it's historically accurate, but in the context of the movie, it works pretty well. But you find out that the two of them were seriously injured in what was then known as the Great War, and they were fighting in Amsterdam, and they were also taken to be healed in Amsterdam with a dream of a French nurse whose name is Valerie Vose, who's played in this movie very well by Margot Robbie. And cut to 15 years later in 1933, where two of these friends, Christian Bale's character and John David Washington's character, witness a murder, are framed for it, and uncover one of the most outrageous plots in American history. So this movie has a lot of big actors in it, not just Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington, but it also has a plot that intersects both these two characters trying to clear their name in addition to a lot of conspiracy theories that are interwoven into the story. And frankly, these conspiracy theories make the plot of this film all the more confusing. And I also wasn't sure if this movie was supposed to be a comedy or a drama or a mystery Because there are things that happen in this film that are weird, but I wasn't sure whether it was supposed to be funny or whether it was supposed to be clumsy or or tragic. But for that reason, I don't really think that the movie works particularly well. Because there's one scene where Christian Bale's character, who, as I mentioned before, is a doctor, is wheeling in a a cadaver, uh, excuse me, a cadaver... I've got my words mixed up there, a cadaver to be examined uh, for how the cadaver actually died. And he's wheeling in along with his friend Harold Woodman, John David Washington's character, as well as a fellow comrade, Milton King, who's played by Chris Rock. And as they're wheeling him into the examination room, they start to lose control of the wheels and the casket is bouncing off of things. And the the daughter of the dead body, Liz Meekins, who's played by Taylor Swift, is trying to tell them, be careful with my father's body. But they keep slamming him into uh, whatever's around while Chris Rock is saying that 
there's a faulty wheel on the casket as if it's a, a grocery as if as if it's a shopping cart. And you know, you're not watching the scene, you're not exactly sure whether that's supposed to be funny or supposed to be part of the characterization of the the characters that you see. But again, it's not very well presented here. And when the mystery gets going and as Christian Bale and John David Washington's characters are trying to clear their name and they're working with Margot Robbie, the three of them have some good chemistry. And there's also a romance that goes on between John David Washington and Margot Robbie. And this is back at a time when interracial relationships were widely unaccepted. But despite that, I thought that part of the movie worked pretty well, but the rest of the movie was just just a confusing mess in terms of its story. Again, there are some great actors in here. I already mentioned Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and John David Washington several times. There are also some other great actors in here like Michael Shannon, Mike Myers, Timothy Oliphant, Rami Malek, Anya Taylor-Joy, Zoe Saldana, and Robert De Niro. And those are just amongst the most well-known actors. But overall, I just didn't really get into the story. And it was a tremendous disappointment because the story was just kind of all over the place. And the conclusion to the story, what the grand conspiracy theory and who was behind the conspiracy theory when it came true was revealed, didn't seem A, particularly relevant, B, a cheap plot device, and C, not particularly historically accurate either. And this is not a movie that's based on a true story. And it's not based on a book either. It's actually uh, based on an original story and screenplay written by David O. Russell, the director himself. And I would like to applaud movies, not only with great actors in it, but also ones that are not based on books or TV shows or any other medium, because most of the Hollywood movies that come out are based on other mediums. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's more commendable when somebody comes out with an original story. What I wanted, however, was for this story to be a bit clearer and maybe clearer as to whether it should be a comedy or a drama. But as good as an actor as Christian Bale and John David Washington are, not to mention Margot Robbie, they're not comic actors and they don't really work very well in the comedy realm if this movie was trying to be a comedy. But either way, it was very random as a story. And for that reason, Amsterdam gets my rating of a very disappointing strikeout. I would say that the acting performances by the three main characters, as well as other side supporting characters like Robert De Niro, were what made this movie probably worth watching. But it was very confusing, and for that reason, I can't quite recommend it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Curse of Bridge Hollow, which is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on October 14th, 2022. 
And this movie is only available for streaming on Netflix. I don't believe it is out in theaters right now. It is directed by Jeff Wadlow, who previously brought us in terms of his uh, feature-length films, most of which are mainstream. Uh, The 2005 movie Cry Wolf, that was his feature film debut as a director. He also directed Never Back Down, Kick-Ass 2, True Memoirs of an International Assassin, the 2018 version of Truth or Dare, and also the Bloomhouse version of Fantasy Island, which is not, was sort of based on the show with uh, Ricardo Montalban, but it is also sort of a an adaptation with a horror slant. And when that movie came out in 2020, I didn't get actually the chance to see it. But The Curse of Bridge Hollow is sort of uh, geared more towards Jeff Wadlow's love of and talent for horror, but it is a movie that the whole family can watch because it is a horror comedy with, I would say, a an age-appropriate theme. And the movie is actually rated TV-14, which is the equivalent of the MPAA PG-13, but I think the movie could have been rated... TV PG or the equivalent of PG because I think kids who watch this little children might be scared by certain imagery in this. But overall, I think this is a movie that children ages eight and older could watch and they wouldn't necessarily have nightmares from it. It's more of a comedy than it is a horror movie, but it's a movie that centers on a teenage girl who moves from Brooklyn, New York with her parents to the small town of Bridge Hollow, which is presumably in western Massachusetts. I don't know when where this movie was filmed, but I think it was filmed in uh, Massachusetts, given the fact that some characters in this movie who are townies of Bridge Hollow have Boston accents, particularly the mayor of the town, who's played by Lauren Lapkus, in one of the better performances in this movie. But the teenage girl in this movie is named Sydney, and she's played by a young actress by the name of Priya Ferguson, who is only 16 years old. In this movie, she's 14. But she has had extensive acting experience before this movie, including a recurring role in the Netflix series Stranger Things. She plays the role of Erica Sinclair. And she certainly has acting chops, and she acts very well alongside everyone in this movie, particularly the actors who play her parents, Marlon Wayans and Kelly Rowland. And at first, when I heard that Marlon Wayans was going to be in this film and that it was a Netflix original, I kind of braced myself because I have been very, very critical of Marlon Wayans ever since doing this show because I have said that Marlon Wayans is a second-rate comic actor and that he got to the status where he is because of nepotism, particularly his more talented brothers, Keenan and, excuse me, Keenan Ivory and Damon. And I am correct, but I saw Marlon Wayans last year in the Aretha Franklin biopic, Respect, and while that biopic was not perfect, I did appreciate Marlon Wayans' performance in that movie, and I thought he did very well. I also liked Marlon Wayans in the movie Requiem for a Dream, but the movies that Marlon Wayans has had the starring role in, which were comedies, have been very, very bad. Movies like Fifty Shades of Black and Sextuplets, 
And basically, Marlon Wayans has been playing a man-child throughout all these movies. And I even said, this is a man who is in his 40s. He's 50 years old now, and he needs to grow the hell up in terms of the characters he plays, as well as his his tendency to play characters that are very, very offensive to black people. He just takes a negative black stereotype and runs with it. And when I say takes a negative black stereotype, just think of a negative black stereotype, and Marlon Wayans has probably exploited it. However, Marlon Wayans is actually good in this film. He's not perfect, but he is good, largely because A, He plays a man who's grown up. He plays a guy who's actually a science teacher who moves to this small town of Bridge Hollow. And B, he takes a back seat to just about everyone else in this film. He actually plays a believable dad who's taking a risk and taking his family from Brooklyn, New York to Bridge Hollow, presumably Massachusetts, and starting over again. And he's married to a beautiful woman played by, uh, I mean played by an aspiring uh, vegan baker, uh, Emily, who's played by Kelly Rowland, who, my God, (laughs) uh, I'm going to stop gushing over how beautiful Kelly Rowland is because I have a girlfriend whom I love very much and who kind of looks like Kelly Rowland too, just saying. But anyway, so the three of them move to this town and they find that the People who reside in this town really, really love Halloween and love to decorate for it. And Marlon Wayans' character seems to be a bit of a Scrooge when it comes to celebrating Halloween. I don't. One of the weaknesses of the film is I really wish they hadn't taken it that far where Marlon Wayans hates Halloween, but that's the direction this movie takes. And it runs into juxtapos- juxtaposition to his daughter, Sydney, uh, because... He wants her to be somebody who believes in and maybe has a career in science, whereas she likes the Halloween traditions. And this runs into a very contrived conflict with both of them. And it turns out one of that the decorations that Sydney purchases is a candle that, when lit, creates this curse of Bridge Hollow, which results in some kind of epidemic going around where a spirit brings these elaborate Halloween decorations to life and six these Halloween decorations on these poor townspeople, including, as I said, the mayor of Bridge Hollow, played by Lauren Lapkus, a very eccentric next-door neighbor, played by Rob Riggle, and also the original woman who founded this curse, who's played by Nia Vardalos in a very unrecognizable appearance by her, but Nia Vardalos is a very talented comic actress, and she plays the part of this um, old townie very well. There are also some very good performances by the likes of John Michael Higgins, who plays Principal Floyd, who also has some very good... a good subplot where he is a dedicated and approachable principal of the high school at which Marlon Wayne's characters works. But when you find out more about him, you find out he's actually a Satanist, but the way John Michael Higgins plays the Satanist is actually very funny. And the special effects when these Halloween decorations come to life are quite impressive. And I think that Marlon Wayans worked very well in this film alongside Priya Ferguson when the two of them are trying to fight off this curse 
and Marlon Wayans uses his knowledge of science to fight these creatures off. I thought that was a very good development. I did wince when Marlon Wayans screamed when some of these characters uh, or some of these Halloween decorations came to life because I really don't like Marlon Wayans scream and I think it's it kind of brought the movie back a little bit but with that said while I do give the curse of Bridge Hollow my rating of a checkout I do think that a it is probably Jeff Wadlow's best movie that he's directed to date b I think it's Marlon Wayans best comedy and he does well when he's a grown up and he actually lets other people in the movie have their funny moments as well. And C, I liked it better than Hocus Pocus too, because I thought that while the introduction of the lamp and how the, the character of Sydney obtained the lamp was kind of brushed over. I did love the special effect and I thought there was some legitimate consistency with the, the titular curse of bridge hollow that comes about in this film. So I do think this is an enjoyable film to watch on Halloween, especially if you're looking for something a little more lighthearted with, with that horror edge and Marlon Wayans actually did impress me in this film. I thought he had good chemistry with both Priya Ferguson and Kelly Rowland as the father and husband respectively. I thought there was a bit of a tired joke in here with, with, Kelly Rowland's character being a vegan baker and somehow her vegan delicacies are disgusting to just about everyone who tried it. I've seen this kind of trope in movies before. I think we're beyond this point where vegan bakers only bake disgusting food, but the curse of bridge hollow impressed me a little bit more, more than I thought it would actually a lot more than I thought it would. It did have some problems in terms of its story here and there, but overall I liked it. I did get a lot of chuckles, including out of Marlon Wayans character out of whom I didn't, think I would get any chuckles and it's probably going to be a movie that's going to be a bit of a cult hit for this Halloween as well as the Halloweens to follow. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of October 17th through 21st, 2022. And I'll get into the movies that are going to be released in theaters first, and then I will get into the movies that will be released primarily on streaming. So the biggest movie that's going to be released in theaters 
for the week of October 17th through October 21st is the movie Black Adam. And Black Adam is based on a DC Comics character uh, of whom I actually was not familiar until I not only saw that this movie was coming out, but there was also a cameo by Dwayne Johnson, albeit an animated one, in the DC animated film uh, about uh, the DC League of Super Pets. Yeah, and that was a very actually clever end credit scene with Dwayne Johnson, who also voiced the uh, the voice of Superman's dog in that film. So I thought that was a very clever tie-in. And also, Black Adam looks to be possibly a better film than some of the movies that have come out in the DC Extended Universe. And for those of you who are not familiar with Black Adam... Nearly 5,000 years after he was bestowed with the almighty powers of the Egyptian gods and imprisoned just as quickly, Black Adam, who's played by Dwayne Johnson, is freed from his earthly tomb, ready to unleash his unique form of justice on the modern world. So as I said, Dwayne Johnson is headlining this film, and Dwayne Johnson is not only... Um, a very exciting and profitable actor. He also chooses his roles to his credit very carefully and has, since he became a household name, not just his uh, WWE uh, character, The Rock. Uh, A lot of people still know him as The Rock, but he has done a better job in the movies than any WWF or WWE alum to date. Although John Cena is also sort of becoming a a bit of a protege of uh, Dwayne Johnson, or at least following in his footsteps, which might be a bit dangerous because um, John Cena and The Rock were rivals um, in WWE and probably still are. I know I've seen some pay-per-view matches of their, um, their fights, but anyway, Dwayne Johnson is Black Adam in this movie, as I said. Viola Davis is reprising her role as Amanda Waller from the Suicide Squad movies, so that ought to be pretty interesting. And there are other actors in this film who I believe are new to the DC Extended Universe, including Sarah Shahi, who plays Adriana, who is presumably Black Adam's love interest. Pierce Brosnan plays Dr. Fate. Aldous Hodge plays Carter Hall. I don't know who any of these characters are. I'm just presuming who they are. But I I only know or know of the characters played by Dwayne Johnson and Viola Davis. But this looks like a very exciting film. It is a film that I will see. And I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 21st is a movie that's called Ticket to Paradise. This is a movie that is going to draw the moviegoers who don't want to see a comic book movie. And I think it might do well because of that. It's also a movie that stars George Clooney and Julia Roberts in their fifth movie together. They've been previously in all three Ocean's Eleven films, as well as one film, I think it was the last film in which George Clooney acted, where George Clooney plays a a CNBC-like reporter who gets taken hostage, and Julia Roberts plays uh, his producer. That movie was called Money Monster, and that came out actually six years ago, back in 2016. And the only movie that George Clooney has done 
um, after Money Monster, besides Ticket to Paradise, is The Midnight Sky, which was a very imperfect Netflix original film that came out in 2020 while the pandemic was still going on. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, The Midnight Sky probably would have been released in theaters. But again, uh, George Clooney is back on the big screen. He's he's done movies uh, infrequently, but he's still on the A-list as far as I can tell. And in Ticket to Paradise, Julia Roberts and George Clooney play a divorced couple who team up and travel to Bali to stop their daughter from making the same mistake that they made 25 years prior. So my guess is that the two of them are going to fall in love when they go to Bali. But then again, it it might not necessarily go that way. But George Clooney and Julia Roberts need no introduction as actors. The other actors in the film may need more of an introduction, like Sean Lynch, Ariel Carver O'Neill, and Ling Cooper Tang, amongst other such actors. But with Julia Roberts and George Clooney in the movie... Uh, both of whom are Academy Award winners. Yeah, you don't really need to explain them. Ticket to Paradise may be a movie that I'll see, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 21st is a movie that is called Slayers. This is a movie that looks like it's going going to be in more limited release. It's about a group of superstar influencers who are drawn to a reclusive billionaire's mansion only to find themselves trapped in the lair of an evil vampire. The only way out is to be saved by a famous online gamer and an old-school vampire hunter. Now, the stars of the movie are relatively... They're somewhat well-known, but not A-listers. Thomas Jane stars in this movie. What character he plays i don't know but he's probably not an influencer at his age the movie also co-stars kara hayward jack donnelly lydia hurst malin ackerman and abigail breslin amongst others so some familiar names in there and some people who i've known from other films before slayers looks like an exciting film as well as one that might be coming out a little late during the Halloween season. But if I see that movie in theaters or I see it playing in a local movie theater near me, probably the Belcourt theater, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Paul's promise. And I should also note that it is subject to being released in theaters on October 21st. This is a movie that is an inspiring true story of Paul Holderfield, who is a bigoted firefighter turned pastor, interesting, who started one of the first integrated churches in the American South. Sounds like very uh, heavy um, topic right there. I mean, you would not expect an integrated church in the American South to be started by a former bigot. But this movie is undoubtedly a faith-based film. Ryan O'Quinn plays the pastor in this film, Paul Holderfield. The supporting actors in the film also include Linda Pearl, Sherry Rigby, Joseph Cannon, Bianca Laverne Jones, and Tank Jones. 
They might be related. I don't exactly know, but none of these actors are particularly familiar to me. Oh, and actually, Dean Cain makes an appearance in this movie as well. Dean Cain, who I think played the best Superman ever in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and who I think was so good as that Superman, he might as well play the role in the DC Extended Universe. And I don't care that he's too that he might be too old to play Superman. He should play Superman in a film. But his bread and butter these days has been in being in faith-based movies. He's not necessarily bad. I think he's actually a very good actor. As I said, he was excellent as Clark Kent and Superman in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, in which he starred from 1993 to 1997. But Paul's Promise is a movie I may not see, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the final movie that is subject to being released in theaters on October 21st is a movie that's called Women Talking. It is released only in theaters, and it actually takes place in 2010, so not too, too long ago. But it's about the women of an isolated religious community who grapple with reconciling their reality with their faith. This is based on a novel written by Miriam Toes. Why it takes place in 2010 of all years, I don't exactly know. But the movie is written by, or the screenplay was written by, and it is directed by Sarah Polly, who has been in movies for over 30 years. She's one of those child actors along with Ron Howard, Kurt Russell, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and others as being the exception to the curse of the uh, child actor, not the rule. And the rule is pretty sad. But this movie actually has a lot of big names in it, a lot of great actors and actresses in it, including uh, Rooney Mara, who I think is overrated as an actress, but she's not the only high-profile actress in this film. Also co-starring with her is Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, three-time Academy Award winner Frances McDormand, and Judith Ivey, amongst other people. So this is a movie that I hope... I'll be able to see in theaters, but I'm not necessarily counting on it. But the fact that it's directed by Sarah Polly and also brought to you by the producers of Best Picture winners Moonlight and Nomadland may indicate this film is an Oscar contender, but I can't guarantee it. But if I see this movie in theaters, I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, not necessarily next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've given you a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters for August, excuse me, October 21st, it's now time for me to get into my next segment of what's coming up next, which I go into as many movies that are being released on streaming platforms as possible. 
I don't get to all the streaming platforms and I don't get to all the new movies, but I try to cover as much as I can. Most likely the films that I will most likely see before doing this show. So on Netflix, there is one original movie that is subject to being released on the, on the platform on Tuesday, October 18th. And the movie is a musical documentary, which is called Lisa, Another Great Day. It follows the true face of Lisa, the popular Japanese singer well-known for her numerous hit songs, such as the theme song of Demon Slayer. Do I know anything about the Japanese singer Lisa? Not a thing. But her name is actually spelled capital L, lowercase i, capital S, capital A. Why she has that uh, gimmick in her name, I don't exactly know. But I've been very impressed with musical documentaries that I've seen on streaming, not necessarily on Netflix, but on other streaming platforms like Hulu as well. And the movie is directed by Taki Toshi Sato. Will I see the movie? Maybe, but no guarantee. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Wednesday, October 19th, there are actually two Netflix original films that are going to be premiering. The first one is an American one called The School for Good and Evil. And the other one, which I'll get into in a moment, is a film that has that shares a title with many other films that have come out over the last century. And that movie is an Australian film called The Stranger. First, I'm going to get to the movie The School for Good and Evil, which actually sounds kind of like Harry Potter because of course Harry Potter's school Hogwarts was a school for good and evil granted the vast majority of wizards who went to Hogwarts were good but there was about 25% of them i.e. the ones who attended or were part of the house of Slytherin who were for the most part evil but The School of Good and Evil is an American film that is directed by Paul Fague, and it's about best friends Sophia and, excuse me, Sophie and Agatha, who find themselves on opposite sides of an epic battle when they're swept away into an enchanted school where aspiring heroes and villains are trained to protect the balance between good and evil, kind of like Hogwarts. The movie is actually based on a book, not by J.K. Rowling, but by Soman Chanani, and the screenplay is written by David McGee. Amongst the people who act in the film include, well, the main characters are played by Sophia Ann Caruso and Sophia Wiley. The former plays Sophie and the latter plays Agatha. But the actors who you know who are in this film include... Kate Blanchett, who doesn't actually act in it much as as much as she provides the voice of a character called the Storian, and I haven't read the book, so I don't know who the Storian is yet. But also starring in the film is Carrie Washington, Charlize Theron, Lawrence Fishburne, and Michelle Yeoh. Amazing adult cast here. I can't speak for the two actors who play the. Uh, the main characters, the the main kids in the film. Although Sophia and Caruso, I have seen in a few other movies and TV shows previously. She actually acted on um, the the show Smash, which was a excuse the pun Smash hit for NBC when it came out 
almost a decade ago. But The School for Good and Evil is a movie that I will probably see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, not necessarily next week's show, because that's actually putting a lot of pressure on me. But the other Netflix original film that will be premiering on the platform on Wednesday, October 19th, is The Stranger. And The Stranger, as I said, is an Australian film that stars Joel Edgerton and Sean Harris. They play two men who meet on a plane and strike up a conversation that turns into friendship for Henry Teague, worn down by a lifetime of physical labor and crime. This is a dream come true. Why this is a dream come true, I don't exactly know, but that's what the synopsis tells me. The movie is directed by Thomas M. Wright, who had previously brought us movies as a director. Uh, Actually, only one movie as a director, and that movie was Acute Misfortune. So The Stranger is the second film that he has directed. I haven't seen Acute Misfortune, so I can't really tell you whether or not to brace myself for a bad movie or maybe lower my, uh, raise my expectations way too high for a potentially great movie. But I tend to keep my expectations in check when it comes to movies that are either slumps potentially or great movies potentially. And that's the exciting thing about being a movie critic. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. But The Stranger is a movie I might see, but I'm not necessarily guaranteeing that I will. But it will be on Netflix on Wednesday, October 19th, if you are interested in seeing it. And on Friday, October 21st, there are two films that are going to be premiering on Netflix. One is a film that is a documentary called Descendant. And I'm going to see if I can find any uh, information about it. Fortunately, I can. It, it's it, it's kind of difficult because Descendant, if you type it into IMDb, you might get The Descendants, a movie starring George Clooney, which came out over a decade ago. Or you might get the show Descendants, which is on the Disney Channel and is about descendants of Disney villains. But Descendant is a documentary that is directed by Margaret Brown, and it follows descendants of the survivors from the Clotilda the last ship that carried enslaved Africans to the United States as they reclaim their story. This sounds like an amazing, prolific, and potentially Oscar-nominated documentary because slavery is a heavy topic. It's not a dead topic, even though slavery, as we knew it from the 1600s to the 1800s, has been outlawed, but that doesn't mean slavery has completely gone away. That's another story for another time, but Descendants sounds like an amazing documentary that I will do my best to see, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the last Netflix original film that will be premiering on Netflix on Friday, October 21st, is a movie that's called 20th Century Girl. Not 21st Century Girl, but 20th Century Girl. It's not related, as far as I know, to the movie 20th Century Woman, which came out in 2016, starring Annette Bening, Elle Fanning, and others. 20th Century Girl, unlike 20th Century Woman, is a movie that's made in South Korea, and it's it actually takes place in 1999, whereas 20th Century Woman takes place in America in the late 1970s. But in 1999, in this movie... A teen with a heart of gold begins keeping close tabs on a popular classmate as a favor to her smitten best friend. 
This has no actors or behind the scenes personnel that I recognize because this is a movie from South Korea, but it sounds like an amazing, uh, idea for a movie certainly has a plot that would get a good story going. So 20th century girl is a movie I'm interested in seeing, but my God, there are so many movies that I have heard about and have seen on my Netflix, um, platform that I have not had time to see. And there are movies like, for instance, Blonde with Ana de Armas, which is a long, long movie about Marilyn Monroe. I've heard other people talking about it. I've heard some people love it. Other people hate it. But I have not seen it yet. There's also another film on Netflix starring Mila Kunis called The Luckiest Girl Alive, which came out last week. It's a movie that I still want to see, and I have not gotten the chance to see it yet because... I do this job and I work a full-time job and two part-time jobs. So I don't get paid to do these reviews yet, but maybe that'll change in the future. But those, those other movies that I mentioned, Blonde, Luckiest Girl Alive, and so on and so forth, I will see those eventually. I may not necessarily see them for next week's show, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So that's it for movies that on Netflix that are going to be premiering on the platform from um, October 17th through October 21st, 2022. On Disney Plus, there's one film that will be appearing on the platform that is actually, um, it's a Disney Plus, it's not a Disney Plus original, and the only information I can find about it is that it's, it is a Disney film, but it's not a Disney Plus original, and for that reason, it's, it's called, according to the website that I'm seeing, it's a movie, but the only information I can find about Disney Hall of Villains is a TV special. And I don't know if that's going to be the one that's going to be premiering on Disney Plus, but Hall of Villains will be appearing on Disney Plus on Friday, October 21st, based on whether or not it's a movie or a or a uh, an actual TV special. I don't know if I'm going to be reviewing it for you for next week's show, but if you're interested in checking it out, you're welcome. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.